So welcome guys to Wemcast, another episode with Owen Walker. I'm here today with um, a colleague and, and friend of Wem's, uh, Julian Woodall. Uh, welcome, Julian. Hey, how's it going, Owen? Good, good. Great back. to be here. Good, good man, good man. So in this episode, Julian, I just wanted to get a little bit about your background um, and your perspectives on, on where you've come from, really, because you've got a nice, uh, really varied background and um, it's, it, this is, there's some real lessons we can learn from some of the stuff you've done, some of the stuff you've been up to, and, and it bears relevance on, on where we are today. So, Julian, do you just want to um, introduce yourself for the, for, the, for the listeners as to where you've come from? Okay, so um, how I started off as a medic, it was by accident. Uh, I served in the, in the army from 1990 till 2005. And in 2002, I went over uh, to another unit on an operational uh, tour. And uh, we've always done first aid, always, always um, through our army uh, career. I remember this one instructor, he was, he was on a specialist course I was on, and he was, he was a Southern Irish guy. And it was 2001, the start 2002, and Afghan had only just kicked on. And in his Southern Irish accent, he used to go on about how much he loved trauma. And the rumour had it was, he used to drive around the M25 on a weekend looking for car accidents to practice his trauma. Because before Afghanistan kicked off, there was absolutely nothing at all. So he used to do that. He was really right, passionate about his trauma. So he, he taught us some first aid. And then it was in, I reckon, about May 2002. I was walking across our compound. And I had a brew in my hand. And our big um, uh, our staff sergeant who's in uh, charge of training, he said, Oi, age fancy going on a medics course. I went, Okay. Um, never done anything or even thought about it went on the medics course and it was it, it was only like a week's course this one because the army do have a habit of sticking you through some right crash courses and i loved it because i was learning all these new skills and everything and it, i found it interesting and i think it was interesting because um the instructors how they how they actually put it over so i took a lot away from that so i started then applying for like other courses and uh, one of the best courses i did was actually the myra course the medicine in um, remote areas course and once again fantastic instructors on that and I, I just absorbed all that info and I got out of the army in 2005 and I set up a business called Medic Services International. So now I work as a health and safety training consultant and as remote areas medic. So I'm lucky I've worked in some real good out of the way places. And I'm always loving adapting to new areas as well. I find it like I'll have a go at that, see what that is like. Uh, I'm a desert person. I do love it out in the desert. Back in uh, 2018, a friend of mine who's 
Bunsk and a soldier. So they were the two fancy coming out and having a week in Norway of uh, cross-country skiing. Never been to Norway. I'd done a bit of cross-country skiing in Austria. What I did, I, I ran him through a level three outdoor first aid course. And I was in temperatures like minus 17 and stuff like that. And I wrote up a blog each day about it because I was getting, it was cold, <laughs> put it that way. So more we, I find it a challenge actually adapting. And I find it more of a challenge if it's more of a remote area, I find it more of a challenge. And with obviously uh, less kit as well. Yeah, absolutely, Julian. Absolutely. So, um, so, so when you when you were in the military, what just just doing a bit of a deep dive into your military experience, what 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 area of the military were you in, and and what did you what were you deployed, where were you deployed, and what? Rank? I was artillery. I was a gunner, and I was a forward observer, and I did air defence as well. But a lot of us are cross trained as well, so we'll course will come up, and they'll say right, I need a medic. So I went on a, without going into actual detail, a specialist course. I, I passed it. So once you go away with that uh, unit, you get other options to do in other courses as well. And that's where it started, obviously, to actually come from. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. And did you get a chance to put that 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 teaching into practice in your military experience? Did you did you have moments or scenarios where you had to stem catastrophic hemorrhage or indeed look after colleagues in the field? I can tell you the first time I dealt with a catastrophic injury, and it was July nineteen ninety six in Northern Ireland. And we'd done all the first aid, obviously, uh, um, training and the build-up stuff. And it was, I can remember the time and everything, and it was 20 to 7 on a morning. And it was in the uh, July, and I'd, I'd been uh, deployed about uh, seven days. And we was in a thing called a sangha, which like a bunker. So they have a downstairs and upstairs. We had a guy upstairs, a guy, a lad called Nick, and I was downstairs. And, I, and it, it was in Belfast, and we see this guy on, on the, the Antrim uh, road. And we was in our little camp, our uh, security force camp. And there was a lad running in front of the cars. Now, soldiers have a very dark sense of humour. And if you qualify as a medic, you have an even more dark sense of humour. So I said uh, to the guy upstairs, Nick said, I said, um, uh, do us a favour. We've got a lad at the moment. He thinks he's a dog. He's actually chasing after the cars. I say, the call up pops through, and then um, I want you to, um, the, the, they'll get on to the um, uh, time it is, is the RUC. Uh, before, uh, now it's the uh, PSA 9. So a couple of minutes later, he came walking down a road uh, towards us and he stopped. We used to have a piece of glass about that thick, armour-plated glass. And he stood and just looked at me, stared at me. And he pulled out a knife and he started to slash across his arms and saying the words, I'm going to kill myself. So we got him in. 
and we got him in uh, to the camp. And I always remember he had a knife at his, he had blood all over his arms completely. He had a knife at his throat. And he said, don't kill me, don't kill me. I'm a Catholic kid. Uh, and he told the story. It's quite a sad story. And we must have gone through quite a few obviously bandages. And we called up um, to the medics and everything. And they obviously came over. And that's the first time I'd ever, mm. I'd ever treated a catastrophic bleed. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience because it wasn't like I've obviously treated other people who've been injured and you can go and you can calm them down. But if it's someone who's uh, committed, committing or trying to commit a, a suicide, it's quite bad. And he's also taken antidepressants as well, about 40 of them. So that was the actual first time I treated a, a catastrophic bleed. Gosh, gosh. Uh, as you say, Julian, quite a quite a difficult situation, actually, because uh, it sounds like it's multifactorial. Um, did, did you take any principles from that around treating catastrophic bleeds? As in, was there any, was there any sort of fundamentals that you you you, that you now teach when you when you were what, that you saw at that time that to, just to stem the bleeding? I I teach now. I. I actually stick it in every single course I teach. And what I think is, I say, is I can't teach you how to act at an incident because it was basically um, a shocking thing to me. And I never had any counselling for it. But what it, and I must admit, I panicked. I saved his life, but I still obviously panicked about it. And I'm honest about it. But as I've grown older and more experienced, I've now come to the fact where I can handle situations in a much more calmer way. Um, and I put that in. What the importance was, was actually telling him to stick his hand on his uh, wrist. So getting him um, to do the work, getting him to do some of the work for you, actually, whilst ever you get your bandages ready. Yeah. 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 And it was the old army bandages where it comes out like a butterfly. I don't know if you've, you've actually seen that. We got our taught in our course in 2002 to carry a crate bandage. So the thing was, if we got shot, you pulled, we just call them like wings, you pulled the wings off, shoved them in the hole, put the, the field officer dressing on at top, and then put the the crepe bandage around it. It's never caught, you know, the, these railies caught on obviously to it and and come out with some great obviously bandages. And they must have got it from because I think now the stuff that we actually carried in our like med kits, even in the 2002, oh my god, things have advanced. Like the tourniquet was like a a, a rubber hose. It was, <laughs> it had like a, I remember metal round of a circle and a, a, like a half on the actual top looked like an eight. So compared to the kit we've got now, it's... It's vastly different. Yeah, absolutely. So Julian, let's just move forward slightly. So you come out of the military in 2002. How, where yeah. do you find yourself? No, 2005. Sorry, 2005. Where do you find yourself in 2005 and how... Do you transition to where you are now? I I worked as a medic on a couple of CP teams, but that was rather boring. And then I had all these qualifications and I thought I need to do something which is going to 
benefit not only myself but people so um, I went on a, a first aid instructors course and I learnt lots on that then from the first aid instructors course we're looking someone that told us about a job with the uh, Navy as a first aid instructor as a civilian uh, uh, contractor I had a meeting, I had a meeting and an interview about it. So I worked for the Royal Navy from 2008 till 2012. That job was, that's where I learned all, a lot more stuff. And each step I've done courses, I've actually learned more. Yeah. I must admit. Yeah. Now where it's brought me in um, 2020, a lot more experience, a lot more um uh, knowledgeable and a lot more adaptable for each country that I actually go to yeah. and one thing I do is I learn about that country before I go in there yeah. so so at the moment so um, let's just define for listeners what you're doing what primarily you're doing now so, so what do you do now Julian what's your what's the mainstay of your work now I teach anything firm well a lot of the people who I teach now are remote workers, uh, like uh, tree surgeons. Um, just got a contract with a wind farm. Um, I've, I've got a contract with a car company who's an engineering company, and they send their um, engineers into either extreme cold or extreme mossy desert areas to actually... Um, um, and test their engines and that and at high altitude so I'm basically I um, um, teach remote areas and first aid to a, v a very high standard so it's it's mostly people who haven't got any any like medical care that's basically not an hour away we're looking at two hours three hours a day two days yeah, gosh. Um, I taught a course out in Iraq uh, at a refinery at um, Basra in uh, 2017. And I said, how long is it until the emergency services turn up? And the guy said, two days, three days, four if we're sort of lucky. Wow. So they needed really in-depth thought of keeping the guys alive uh, training. So Iraq's not, and, the only, uh, not the only place you've been to, is it? I mean, I know you've been all over the M Middle East and and Africa. Where um, I, I also know you've been done a lot in Ethiopia. Where's just so let, we'll, we'll, let's look at Ethiopia and a few other places. But yeah. Where's the remotest you've been? Um, albeit maybe it, it is Ethiopia. Where, where's the sort of furthest away from definitive care you've been? Jordan. If something would have gone wrong in Jordan, I would not be here now. Now, a lot of the listeners are thinking, well, why would you go out without any care? And so I'm never going to explain about Jordan. So a friend of mine called Seb Coltard, who is an Antarctic explorer, and he's also, he was on the um, Shackleton Epic expedition, and he's also ex-Navy, and that's how I met him. He came back from the uh, Shackleton Epic expedition and we was on about the, doing our own expedition. And he said, I fancy doing a desert thing. And I'm, I have an interest in, in um, Lawrence of Arabia. So we started to look at a desert expedition. 
and we started off first six weeks and everything. Now we did an attack on Akbar, and Akbar is a port in Jordan, and he went. Uh, Lawrence went through the uh, Nafu Desert, Wadi Rum, and then in to Akbar. We looked at our budget, so we decided to just go from Wadi Rum to Akbar to experience what he he felt. But we didn't want to do it just any whim. The ideal time would have been in October. The weather's cooling down and everything like that. Water's easy to actually get to. Get to. In 2017, it was the 100th anniversary of him, Lawrence, going in to Akbar with the Arab army. So our, our mission was to go from Wadi Rum to Akbar, follow the same route as he did on camel. We had myself, Seb, Elder, a Bedouin guide. We had uh, three camels and a baggage camel. Uh -huh. well, the actual baggage camel was called Logistics Camel Alpha One. And we went, we spent five days going through that desert and we saw no vehicles. We saw, we saw a couple of camels. We saw some snake obviously tracks. It was isolation. It was, if we'd have had to call in an emergency from a snake bite or something like that, it would have been basically end, end of exercise. Gosh, but the point gosh. is, we did exactly what Lawrence did, apart from that attack, <laughs> but we experienced extreme heats. But we stuck out a thermometer and went off. It went up to 140. It went off the actual scales. We both had dehydration at some stage. You're lethargic. The sun's out. We wore um, traditional Arab gear, not to actually actually play being a Lawrence, but we wore the first day a shirt and pair of trousers as normal. Changing to Arab gear on the second day, and the difference having the headscarf on, the shemag, the jibala, it's much more cooler because on the camel, all the air comes through. Well, I'm not joking, Owen. It was just, it was a great expedition, but we had all our med kit and it wasn't a big med bag. It was like everything was all condensed, right? I need this, I need that. It was proper remote areas medicine. Now, some of the listeners all think that's a bit stupid, not having a support team and all that. Both of us are medics as like remote areas medicine. I like medics. But also, both of us know, and we did research on the area. We know not to go obviously playing with snakes. We, we saw snake tracks, and we're going up a jebel, a hill, a mountain, and I, I heard a tss, 
and I said, mate, we should get off here now. I think we stood on a snake's house at the moment. And that's the remotest area I've been to. I think even over in Iraq and the oil, like um, the refinery, uh, the evacuated board was like um, uh, 10 obviously caseway, but we had all loads of equipment and all that sort of stuff. And this one day we went to a well for the camels and the well had actually dried up and we had to find another well. And Elder, our guide, he said, uh, there is no my. And my mate went, my? Because I speak a little Arabic. And I said, he means water. There is no water for the camels, for the camels. If the camels die, we die. Oh, that's a bit of a shit deal. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we had loads of food and water on our camels and stuff like that. But he just said, if the camels die, we die. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's the remotest part I've actually been to. Gosh, Julian. So just, just let's, let's look at a few other, other places you've been to. Um, because it's fascinating where your skills and training is taking you. So I know you spent quite a lot of time in Ethiopia. Um, yeah. I want to come back to some of the fundamentals that you've learned about about remote medicine and, and just 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 re- remote first aid in in the remotest of places yeah. and some of the things that you teach and that you. But let's yeah. just first look at look at Ethiopia. How did you come to being in Ethiopia, and what and what did that look like? Old army mate of mine. He asked me if I've ever been to Africa, and I said only Nigeria. And he said, "Well, this job's in Ethiopia. It's a training job. It's ten days a month, or twelve days a month, going from September up until February this year." So I, he's now he lives in uh, Germany. He's a security consultant, and he he got me from. LinkedIn because he'd seen all the stuff I'd put on about you know, uh, catastrophic bleed management and all that. So I flew out to Germany and had a meeting. I stopped at his and he, he told me what it wasn't just I was doing, I was in charge of the all of the mission um, planning, how to teach it, catastrophic bleed management, um, communication skills, how to do the vehicle uh, checks. Um, so we um, developed the actual course around uh, around all all of that. And what it was, it was it was up, it was uh, training uh, nationals who work for an international uh, development company. They work as drivers, and they go in. They go from the capital of Addis or another place, and they take internationals around. So it was teaching them the fundamental skills and also, you know, of obviously what happens if they get stopped by the bandits, the police, how we act at uh, checkpoints. But the important thing was there, they have a sat phone. So they can call in an emergency. But we were teaching them catastrophic bleeds to if they get a fracture in a road accident or a gunshot wound that's going to be another thing, a gunshot wound. So we're teaching them them up to a very high standard. And when we got there and we saw the, the kit that they've got, 
we had to work with that because a lot of people say, well, I'm going to make you need this and you need that. But if the client has got, the client had a hemostatic agent, which I'm not going to um, say its name, I, I didn't think a lot of. I use uh, Celox. They had a, a Sam uh, TX tourniquet. And it's the first time I'd ever used it because I normally use the uh, cap tourniquet. But what you have to do is adapt different type of bandage. It wasn't an ECB, it was another bandage. But you have to improvise, adapt and overcome with what the actual client's got. But it was then more of a challenge because I've not worked in Africa in years and I'm not, and it was actually teaching the opians. I've never been there. So I researched about the actual people, the history of the actual country, the health care and all of that. And it's quite, if they'd have got ambushed or anything, they're in a remote area as well. But they've also got to think of animals. You know, things eating you mm. and stuff like that. And it happens out there. So it was a really big um, project, but it was worthwhile. And the Ethiopians are lovely people. Uh, and it was a great thing. But, but from learning as a remote areas medic, as soon as I got off the aircraft, the altitude is something like 2,400 metres in, in the capital. I got off the aircraft, stood outside, and I was like, I just had a shirt on, I was thinking, it's a bit cold here. I remember I went out and I had on a hoodie top, and there's also a picture of me out there where I've got like a fleece on and a woolen hat on at night time yeah. because the temperature yeah. uh, drops completely. Just they are so it, it was a different, it was a different teaching a different way of teaching, but also how can we teach these people and get them adapted to their environment? And that's what's important. You've got improvise, adapt, and overcome. You know, you've got to pass over skills to people, to people who are, they don't speak English as a first language. You know, I had to slow down completely, lots of hand gestures and stuff because of my, obviously, I got a Worcestershire accent. So I had to slow down. We had to, we had to cut things out of the training that, that was deemed, obviously, technical. And we had to put things in to the training, which was lots of practical hands-on stuff and get them to do it over and over again yeah yeah Julian, was, when when you were teaching when you were teaching um the the ethiopians were you teaching gunshot wounds was that one of the fundamental things you were you were teaching we were teaching fractures gunshot wounds especially um what happens if a bullet hits all of the body and stuff like that sucking um the chest wounds explaining that we were you know, I couldn't obviously take it, all my training equipment out there. So we had to improvise again. We bought out of a shop who were so happy for us. We bought 20 large sponges, 
we then cut holes in the top of the sponges, put some red Aussie like marker pen, and then we taught them wound packing using that. And it, it worked. It worked. You might not. I hear a lot of medics who've got a big pack and everything. And I remember in Oman, I acted as medic and acted as a signaller. And we used to get issued like a pack about that big and you zipped it open and you had all your stuff in the, there. And that's for everything. Now, so I think because I've been taught to operate with less kit if i get something like oxygen and stuff like that you then sort of oh this is a bonus i've got oxygen this time i've not got to use a you know a bag and a valve and a mask so it's it's always good to go back to basics especially in like in a remote area because these people who go um, they may take a 400 um, a kilometer journey they might have a, we say, you know, if you get hit, you either go forward or back. You find the help, where's the health officer centre? Where's the uh, police station? The health centre might be another 100 kilometres. So they've got to keep the person alive for 100 kilometres. And they might not have medical drugs and stuff like that. So that's, that, that brings me nicely on, actually, Julian, to, to the next question about what, what you have, what, what you teach and have probably fundamentally learned about medicine in remote environments and remote areas. What, what are some of the, um, not necessarily basics, but principles that, 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 you, that you teach people um, around sort of keeping people alive in these, in these situations? You have to be adaptable and work with what you've got. I've been to country. I've been to companies in this in this country who they've not got a tourniquet. They've not got an Israeli bandage and stuff like that. They've not got silox. They've not got a fox obviously chest um, seal. So you have to teach with what they've got. But you have to. It doesn't matter if you haven't got a cat or a, a Sam Tourniquet, improvise, adapt and overcome something. If you've, if you've got a wound that's got a hole in it and you need to actually pack it, use something out of the first aid kit. You know, uh, uh, and that's what's important because also in a remote area, if you're in a road accident or you get ambushed or something and in Africa, it happens, and out in Iraq and all those obviously places. If you've got to do a runner, you've got to work with what you've got. So I teach them how to use the stuff up to a high standard. Then say, okay, let's now improvise, adapt, and overcome. With what happens if you've run out of bandages? You've got your T-shirt, you've got your belts and that. The guys out in Ether... Theopra on, on doing splints, they were improvising with belts and scarves and everything, and we weren't even obviously teaching them, which was good, because they might not have, you know, a triangular bandage and stuff like that. And you have to um, 
it's proper remote medicine. <laughs> it's, yeah, 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 yeah. It is. I've got aspirin for that day. Ibuprofen. As far as the communication piece goes, Julian, um, when you when sort of improvise, adapt, and overcome is concerned, because yeah. you're right, it's ubiquitous amongst medical care and comms and situation awareness. Um, with the with with the communication piece, how how were you teaching um, people to uh, improvise, adapt, and overcome? Uh, was it a multimodal approach, sort of a mobile phone, a VHF radio, maybe a sat phone, and just make sure you you're not reliant on one mode alone, or was it was there a number of factors you were you were looking? It was at? all different things. I, I mean, it was Africa, so they said they actually might have to um, send a runner on a donkey or a horse, and I'm being serious. So we started off with. Um, we actually using methane like a report. We use the the uh, W's. Who actually are? What has happened? Where? When? And what? What you need? So that kept it simple for them. Okay. When we went on the to communications, we told them about a mobile phone to the. Um, security risk manager's office okay so they'd report in straight away even if they've been through a militia checkpoint they drive out the way and report in they might be an area that's got a communications office like a black spot where there's no comms in or out uh, another thing that we actually brought in was a thing called a spot code so what a spot code is you go from point A to point G, but each road obviously junction or each like um, village do report in. So if they've gone to A uh, to B, that's the getting a message. B to obviously C, okay. Then if nothing happens from C to D, the SRM's office is going, oh, hang on a minute, or an option is going, hang on a minute we've not heard if they come in after e oh it's okay it was a communications blackout but if you still don't hear anything that's what's important so we also taught them how to use a sat phone as well um you know as an emergency only now some of the people were actually saying on the course well some of us haven't got a sat phone. I said, well, it's, it's all been obviously brought in, but it's a new piece of equipment. And one of the guys did say, we were given a sat phone, we didn't know how it worked. So the importance was that if they had an accident there and there, uh, to report in. If you've been from a gunshot wound in the vehicle and the vehicle obviously drove on, they have to report it out at out of uh, sight because we also taught them how to do an emergency report whilst they're driving but also how to um, uh, stick on the bandage and the tourniquet inside a vehicle as it's going because if you've been ambushed you can't stop so we put a lot of emphasis on obviously calling in an emergency and one of the things I said was, you need 
to work as a team actually doing this. One person is doing like all, all of the medical stuff. The other person, they're calling it in straight away. So, so there's yeah. the simultaneous activity, Julian. So you're, you're, you're advocating that simultaneous activity approach where the, every member, there's no redundancy within the team. So every member is no. doing a specific job. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So. It, it works. It, it works that way. It, it works. It's like we held exercises where there's also been an ambush and the bandits have obviously gone off. Another vehicle in the convoy is actually... Um, found them to get one one person up front looking around the actual corner as like a sentry a lookout in case the bandits come back there was another one where you know one person is is actually doing a triage taking notes another person is then obviously calling it in the initial call and then actually calling in all of the casualties doing a triage and then getting them over to actually triage station and then getting everybody back in. So it was it was using all our military skills. Mm. And they actually loved it because they they they'd been used to having all all of the training in a classroom or films and talks and stuff like that. But having it now having it now out here outside and you're putting it in uh, to practice. That, what, that, what, that is what's important. Yeah, you can definitely. go in the classroom all over and all that sort of stuff, and you can do it over and over again. But in out, outside in a, in a scenario, I feel it's only after years and years of, of obviously practice and doing it, then you can go, right, okay, I need to step back here. And stepping back, Taking a couple of seconds and thinking, how am I going to do this? Another case as well is having a team leader and get the team of the leader to organise people so he can then watch what other people are doing and say, oh, have, have a think about us doing that. That makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And I, I advocate the same in training, Julian, absolutely. Having someone to stand off who can see the bigger picture, who can see the pinch points and the, and, the, and troubleshoot the pinch points as well. But absolutely. And just as, you, as you're advocating, um, which is actually the real power in training is in simulation. Um, so the didactic kind of sitting down, listening to people, there's still space for covering, I think, the basics and fundamentals off in that way. But the real leverage and the real power of education is, is in simulation workshops and that kind of plenary group discussion where there's more interaction and there's more interaction yeah. with the information so it brings it into real terms real life and it actually makes far more much more difference on the ground because people people remember it a lot a lot a lot more when they're actually physically doing it um yeah and, and they're in a dynamic situation um and i've I, my revelation is that you have to incorporate simulation in, into into all training because if you don't, head knowledge doesn't necessarily transpire to being, um, you know, phys physical, you know, physical knowledge. It, it it can stay in the head and or be forgotten quite easily if you're just listening to it. But if you're doing it, it really compounds that learning. Um, yeah. So would you when you were when you were teaching, uh, Julian? Would you 
debrief people afterwards? Would you would you f- provide feedback to them um, in a, in, a, in a structured way, um, or would you? What, what? How would you compound the learning if they weren't doing what you what you wanted them to do? If it's the first time, I I change them over, and what I find is is um, the humour helps because a few of the courses I did the instructors would go, oh my God, what are you doing, Woodall? Uh, you print, you try to put the cricoid tube upside down, you lunatic. And I, right, sorry, staff, well done, son. And you didn't mind that. It was like, yeah, okay, okay I screwed up. But when you got someone bearing down on you, some people can get a bit scared about it. And they're like, uh, 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 uh. so what I do when I run exercises, I let them crack on, and then what I do, then I debrief them. I say, okay, why did you do that? Okay, so did you think about doing that? What about if you did that, then that would have led on to doing that. Say, oh, right, okay. No, so remember, you do it in such a way that they're not, what you don't want is people scared of doing first aid and any remote areas work because they feel then, if you go in at them, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's so wrong. They're going to lose all confidence. They're not going to enjoy it. And learning's got to be fun. Mm. And so the training I do, I make fun where I throw in a few jokes. Some people don't like them, but hey, that's me. I'm the instructor. I'm in charge. But if you make it fun, they remember that. They remember that from the actual training. So if you have a laugh and a joke with them when they've cocked up, afterwards, if they do it in a real situation, I know that they'll think, well, I won't do that because I did that on uh, Julian's course, and he uh, and you know, so the the proof is there as well that I've had clients email me say, "Mate, never guess what? I treated a casualty, and I was just about to make a mistake, and I thought no, and it, someone actually said, what would uh, Julian do?' And that is great." And it's how you've got to be so, you've got to put the training over to the group who you're doing it to, but in a way that they, it's fun, interactive, it's entertaining, but it's educational. So that when they go out into, whether it's first aid in an office or a construction site, where the tree surgeons, where they're working at wind farm, they are basically confident that they can put that, those skills in and in Ethiopia we found that each person was confident doing it that we took a step we, we asked them how we had to say how are you going to do this well I'm going to do this and then what are you going to do well I'm going to do that okay off you go okay because if not it was chaos the first course we just like in England we, we just step back and they go in and they do stuff. It didn't work like that in Ethiopia. It was like, oh my God, what, what they, hang on, what's, 
where's he going and all that sort of stuff. So we worked out the next course. One person came up. There's your casualty. How are you going to treat them? I'm going to do this. Okay. Have you got the equipment? Where's the first aid? Where's the actual trauma bag? It's in the um, glove compartments for Julian. Excellent. Right. Good. Off you go. Here's your casualty. What have they got? Yeah. Sucking chest wound. How are you going to do with that? So it was all about adapting again. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Adapt to the adapt to the situation, which which entirely makes sense. Julian, um, just coming into land slightly. When when you're teaching out in these remote environments, um, I heard you teaching before about standing back and and and, and leadership skills as well. What are some of the yeah. fundamentals of leadership that you teach in these situations, especially when there might be two, three, four casualties? What what do you advocate uh, when when you're teaching these kind of leadership skills? I teach them improvise, adapt, overcome, honesty, integrity, confidence, assertiveness. I say you can't afford to actually do that. You can't go, oh, 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 um, 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 well, uh, oh, because I said that's going to put the actual casualty off. You've got to go in there. I, I always say, I'm honest, I'll say, your heart is going to be giving it that. But you've got to be calm and collected. You've got to look like and act like a leader because that then is going to calm down your casualty because your casualty is going to think that this person knows what they're doing. You can't afford to like, you know, you will drop stuff. I remember I patched up a guy in the Omani Desert. He had an open um, the fracture. And I put on a bolster bandage, either two bandages either side, another bandage. And the doctor was talking to me. And then I went with 2.30 in the morning. I walked around to the other side of the doctor. I tripped up over the casualty's broken leg. Who <laughs> echoed the words, would all you, P word. And it echoed down all of the natural deserts. I went, shh, put on a tactical exercise, shh. But I bring these things in because it's important for the actual delegates on the actual course to know, well, this guy's actually is a human as well. He makes mistakes. But when you're approaching the casualty, I always say, check for danger, 10 seconds, look at your wound, work out how you're going to treat it. Talk to your casualty, and if they can move, get them to stem the actual bleeding or whatever it is, and start asking them what's wrong, how do you feel? Yeah, where's the actual pain? Are you on any diet medication? Start getting a, a patient history as you're getting your gloves on, opening on that pack, getting all of the stuff out. Then you, you can start obviously designating obviously people sometimes. You might not have a team. It's just you. Yeah. And you can't afford You've to stand back. To... You have to come in, stand back, come in, stand back, come in. You've got the team leader, right? Do you know how, right? As, and if you don't know those uh, people, you're out there, right? Does anyone know any first aid? I do. I did it once on a rugby pitch for a kid who had a neck injury. And all, all of the adults were useless. And there's this eight-year-old, I know he was about 10, this kid was, 
So have you got any first aid experience? He said, I'm a scout. I've done a first aid course. Right, you're my assistant now. Because the adults were basically, some of them were just, they just stood around. And one of the things also teach is never be scared about treating a casualty. Because in this country, there's a lot of the, I could get sued bit. And you're just like, no, unless you go above your remit, you're not going to get sued. And if you're in that African bush, <laughs> they're not going to sue you. Yeah. But you're right. You said something key there, which is, you know, stay within your remit, stay within your competence, stay within areas of, of, your, of, your, of, your, of your skill domain. Um, as you said there, which is which is absolutely absolutely key, um, but yeah, I I I, find, I really agree with you, Julian, in regards to everything you were saying there, um, and I know your non technical skills uh, as you're teaching have to be have to be so much better. The incremental the incremental pressure which builds almost mandates more of a non technical approach as well, um, and. So from a, from a sequential point of view, I think sometimes listening and and learning to discern the priority in the C is almost the fundamental prerequisite to where you where you start with the scene. So standing back, almost putting your hands behind your back and just listening for where for who's not making noises because if it is multifactorial yeah. and there's multiple patients, who is self-selecting as far as who's screaming, who's not? Because a dynamic triage situation. Is, is is more so around who might not be making noise and also yeah you know as you were as you were notioning to earlier not necessarily running to patients without remembering the safety piece um, especially in a sort of dynamic road traffic collision or blast or ballistic situation you, you know you know one of the major attributes is from the hierarchy of safety is 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 your own safety and and yeah. actually not 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 getting sort of blind to the fact that there is clinical need in front of you, but that that you you need to be operating in a safe place yourself. Um, and certainly in some of these remote remote environments, that's probably a priority as 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 well. I'm sure. I mean, a good thing. All all of this equipment now, like a tourniquet, cellox, Israeli bandages a fox, a chest a seal, it's all, they're all self-aid equipment. It's all self-aid. If the casualty can drag itself out and acts get into taxol cover behind an engine, obviously block, a tree or something or a ditch and actually treat their cells, they are sorted. But it's a bit of take a deep breath, slow down, all that sort of stuff. You know, um, and that I emphasised that on the actual course. I said, if you're driving along and there's a two of you and your passengers hit, the driver can't do it. You can't obviously pull over. You've got to get the bandage on yourself. You might have to, injured, make that obviously phone call as well. As I say, it's going to be a hard thing, but it, it's got to be done. It has to be. So it's all different sort of... You've got to approach each, each country, each person, each environment 
and each wound in a different way. Because you can't think, well, that worked on that one. The stuff I did in the actual desert would not, might not work in Africa. One of the things I teach is a neck injury. I say, okay, if you've been shot here, how are you going to put on the bandage? And the first thing they do is they say, oh, I'll stick it around here. And then I go, you've achieved 50% of your aim. The 50% is that you've basically stopped the actual bleed. The other 50% of you've actually strangled your casualty. But as soon as you teach them, you put the pad here, and then you go under the armpit. So you get them to put the hand on the head, you go under the armpit, and then you put the hand down, and the tension stops the bleed. They're like, oh, wow. Okay. And one of the things I taught in Africa was I'd say, unless your casualty has got a neck like a giraffe, get the bandage and you fold it over and the pad acts as more of an absorbent. So it's all about, especially out in Africa and the and out in um, um, Arabia, you've got to you've got to know your audience and what you how you can teach here in England you can't teach out there mm. you've got to really slow down and your first course is your is your test almost your baseline or your benchmark it's like right I can't say that because that's a colloquialism I can't do that I'm talking too fast I need to slow down remember every time I used to say if you don't understand me you must say, Julian, slow down a bit. Another thing I found was I learned a bit of words in Amharic. And that impresses the audience because it shows that you've learned their language. So like I was saying, a good at ras, injured head. They'll go, he learns Amharic. It's not like a big I am. That's actually showing you that you're culturally aware. And it's easy for them. Mm. And I did have a notebook and I can't find it anywhere. But I, I, I did have my Amaric phrase book where I have to say, what does that mean? And, you know, how do I uh, pronounce that? Mm. So it's all out there. I mean, it was great. It was a great sort of. We, didn't, we had one person who had a spider's bite, so we just put some antihistamine cream on them, and that was it. Um, some person had a cut finger. I know I had food poisoning the first three trips, and it's not because the food out there is spicy. Mm. <laughs> imagine, I can imagine, I can imagine actually. But it's not... It's not a very good thing. Luckily, I had a second instructor. So every so this one Wednesday, I remember it was Wednesday, I was like, going, now, I'm going to hand you over to Jim. Jim, I will back. Mm. Oh, gosh, gosh, <coughs> gosh. Julian, so just coming into land slightly uh, on the conversation, um, I just wanted to ask if you've got any, um, if you've got any message for the WEM community, really, at, at this time. I know it's quite a difficult time in life we're in the middle of a pandemic um it's, yeah. it's quite a unique time really quite a unique juncture in in life 
this might be the only pandemic we actually indeed live through. But uh, but but to those listening and or watching, have you have you got a message to to the wider community just from your background or from things you've learned or, or would like to say? Um, yeah, we have to think of positive and never never and never think a negative um, because it will end. It will end. The doctors, the scientists, everything that they can to get us off street, um, um, uh, through all this. A lot of people have lost obviously um, the businesses. I know all my obviously training obviously courses have stopped. But I'm thinking new ways of handing over information. I'm, I'm looking at a YouTube uh, channel, you know, how to stick on a tourniquet and a bandit, all that sort of stuff. So if you've got, you're an off-sea uh, business and you're a doctor, if you're in rotos, like medic, if you're in any, any obviously part of the world, have a look at how you can pass over your skills to an audience where you normally have, you go on courses, interact with them. You can't do that now, but you have to think obviously positive. You have to think, how can I get through this? How can I hand over my obviously medical skills still by keeping going? And you've got to think obviously positive about this. Isolation. Um, I stayed over to a mate. Said, "My God, it's like my first tour in Northern Ireland in the South Armagh. You know, you go to the new, you go to the shop, you get food, you come back, you do exercise, you you're stuck indoors. But I've started to do online courses. I'm on my second day of doing a course with the um, um, who." And obviously COVID-19 to learn actually more about it. Then I'm sticking a bit of stuff onto my like Medic Service International um, Facebook page to put out there. So you have to keep active. You have to keep uh, positive. Forget uh, negativity stuff. We will get through this. There's people working um, the flat out, you know, and Doctor Who courses. They, there's some great free uh, courses on there. If you're a doctor at the moment, obviously staring at me, I do, do apologise, docs, if I'm teaching you how to actually uh, suck eggs. But this is from obviously like my point of view is you've got to think obviously positive, you've got to stay obviously safe, you've got to stop indoors and that. But look at ways of getting the word out there. One of the things I'm doing at the moment. I've now, uh, one of my clients who's a tree surgeon said, do you know of any courses uh, on a line for kids? And I said, uh, apart from the good old, the, 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 uh, the, the Vinnie Jones one, can't think of anything else. And then all of a sudden I had a, a flush of inspiration. So I've now got a character called Sherlock Bear, medical uh, detective and what Sherlock Bear does he teaches moms and dads how to teach their kids first aid Fantastic. Fantastic. so it, <laughs> it it's um 
it's a trying off time. It's a sad off time with all of the losses of life and the, that. But we can actually learn from all this. It's happened. Uh, it's no good saying, well, if, you know, if we have done this, if yeah, the lockdown right, would have come sooner, if the government had done this, if the World Health Organization would have done that. You can't think like that. It's happened. It's, it, it, in a military, we've, I've been in uh, situations where we're supposed to go in, we're supposed to do that, and all of a sudden it goes to pot. And you have to replan straight away. We weren't. A big example is 9/11. We were not prepared for actual 9/11. Now in the world now of healthcare and medicine, we were not prepared for the COVID-19. Yeah. But we've just got to get on. We've got to think obviously positive and get obviously through it. Fantastic, Julian. Oh, that makes sense. It does. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And take the lessons learned from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Julian, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I know we've, I'm mindful we've, we've been going on for about an hour. I could talk to you for a lot longer. But, um, but listen, thank you so, so much for your perspectives and your thoughts today, Julian. And um, just, 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 just to finish, if people want to find you, where can they find you, uh, Julian? Right then, I can be found at Medic Services International. We have a Facebook um, page, lots of interesting stuff on there. I've got an Instagram account as well, uh, and that's Medic Services International. And we put stuff on about our courses. We also um, uh, start to put stuff on about health and fitness because at the moment, uh, a lot of people's obviously mental health is obviously going to be uh, suffering from stopping in. So we put on tips of like, I do think called bike and the woodland fitness. Uh, there's been tips on calling in an emergency in a remote area and all that sort of stuff. So there's good things on there. So big thank you to all the NHS, you're doing a fantastic uh, job this moment. Thank you so much. You're actually keeping us uh, safe. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Julian. Listen, it's been a pleasure today talking to you, and uh, and you stay safe. And uh, I mean, thank you, and you. Bye.